0: This is inside the box. I am Trevor and I am here this morning with my good friend David Blakesley. David, how are you doing?
1: Uh, hey, I'm loving life and uh, really happy to be connected with you again to talk about what I think is a pretty significant entry into this, you know, series of box sets that the Criterion Collection has presented to us over the years and just really happy to resume the conversation that you and I have had gosh I mean it's been you know it's been a good decade plus now I I was just thinking about that the other day Um, just you know how we kind of connected and and how we've just kept this thing going and it's really great to be you know talking to you again
0: oh well thank you and I agree a hundred percent this is Always been a pleasure. You were just turning 50 when we started, and uh, you <laughs> yeah, had another yeah. significant anniversary this, this year. Do you want to tell listeners well, about it? Well,
1: sure. I turned 60 back towards the end of August there and had a really wonderful kind of birthday celebration in a park near my home and surrounded by family and friends and, you know, co-workers and just, it was a really wonderful occasion. And, you know, I'm just, I'm at a really content, satisfied place in life, um, unlike the situations we're going to be talking about <laughs> in the three films uh in front of us here but uh, yeah and and again i just again, want to really uh stress uh, your appreciation for how you connected with me back in the you know in that limbo time when my uh collaboration with Rob Nishimura had kind of run its course uh, in the early days of the eclipse viewer and how we uh you know kind of got that little series started again and it really kind of turned me into you know, the, the podcaster <laughs> that I am today, <laughs> uh, because we just, you know, we, we covered so many films and, uh, you know, talked about box sets of a different sort slightly, uh, for, for several years. And it's just, it's just great to, you know, to be together and, and to connect, you know, continue that kind of, uh, you know, ex- exploration that we started back in you know, 2010, I think it was 2011, somewhere in there. And, uh, yeah, so it's been a good decade and, uh, let's, uh, let's, keep it going. we we got good years ahead of us, so uh, yeah, just great to be here.
0: Well, it, it just goes to show that you can do something for purely selfish motives, yeah. and it can still pay off uh, for hopefully other people, <laughs> as yeah, well for yeah. others involved. In fact, I think I remember in our very first episode, we kind of recorded an introduction, and I likened my approach to when Ingrid Bergman wrote to Roberto Rossellini <laughs> and started their collaboration. I think she was doing it for, you know, a little bit of selfish motivations and look where that got them. So, <laughs>
1: but we wouldn't I'll, have Isabella right. Rossellini without that little, uh, you know, interview, Right,
0: <laughs> right. And a box set that we'll probably talk about someday in the, in oh. the maybe nearish future. Yeah. So I yeah, think that. that one's down the line for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, we are here today, listeners, to talk about a, a box set that I think a lot of people have uh, on your TikTok have asked you about, David, and have asked for your thoughts on him. I am I right about that? Does this one pop up every once in a while for you? Well,
1: yeah, you know, them vendors, the Road Trilogy, I guess, just to kind of you know let the mm-hmm. cat out of the bag. There is our is our topic and. You know, it seems to me like Paris, Texas is like the hot ticket on TikTok. You know that that is a film. There's there's this little handful of of Criterion films that, to me, seems to like rise above where I thought they would sort of sit in the general estimation of things. Paris, Texas, Lahen, uh, Mishima, a Life in Four Chapters. I mean, there's just there's just a few that are like, yeah, these are great films, really important, but. The, the TikTok film talk community sort of pushes them to a higher level of prominence, uh, like beyond what I thought, you know, they registered. Um, and and TikTok has its own sort of little sort of vibe to it as far as film is concerned. Um, and so, you know, these films are really kind of the the predecessors of Paris, Texas, and they have their own following. And I think really we've got a an excellent, although... Well, there's a lot of diversity and divergence between the three films, but of course there's that Vendersian, if that's a word, uh, vibe <laughs> he's or he's that quality one. to them, you know, that that uh kind of links them together as a as a legitimate trilogy, not an intentional trilogy, uh, but more of a hindsight, hey, I see some common themes here, which vendors himself has acknowledged and and bought into, even though he was not the you know, originator of that concept and really didn't have a specific uh you know plan to to tie these three films together but there are there's definitely some unities with with the acting crew and really th- the whole thing i mean this really feels like uh kind of a, a a rock band on tour in the early to mid 70s uh except they were making films rather than music and i think that's mm-hmm. really a lot of the charm here and like like you might you know, expect with albums from a band from that period. Uh, each album sort of has its own theme and concept and and uh, approach, but you know, it's still the same group that's producing uh, this work. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about it with you.
0: I like how you compare them to a rock band. I did not know this until this time around that in Kings of the Road, the 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 little. The little van again thing that you see yeah. them driving around <laughs> Yo, yeah, yeah. was like their center of operations for the film too. Oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was the hub, and and everything kind of flowed out of it. And at that point, they really kind of had their uh, kind of road crew swagger going. Like they just felt like, yeah, we can just kind of come up with a premise and and make a movie on the on the spur of the moment, flip of the switch. Turn on a dime, whatever little cliche you want to throw in there. And, and they did it. And and they did it to the extent of like a three-hour, almost like a Grateful Dead concert or something like that. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, right? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's let's step back a little bit then and yeah. talk about Vendors himself. He's We're fortunate, those of us who follow Criterion, there's a pretty good and large selection of his films available to peruse and watch and... You can get to know his work from, you know, these early, early, early films, some of his very first films in the 1970s, all the way through the 80s, through some of his big ones in the 90s, including some, you know, documentaries, and into into the 2000s with uh, Pina, you know, another documentary in 3D. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, the 3D era, that little short-lived bubble when cinema was trying to find a new way to engage viewers and all, yeah
0: and and i think they still the only 3d blu-ray that criterion has released that's correct uh, in, in here we get here we're getting into the uhd era but that was the the lone 3d uh, criterion release but yeah there there's a there's a big selection and as you said you know he's a, a director that a lot of people latch on to he speaks to the soul in a way and yet he's got a pretty varied output. We might get into a little bit of that again. Mm-hmm. we have already mentioned here are these road films, and then documentaries about um, you know dance in Pina, and a documentary about Cuba, and that you can find it on the you know on the Criterion Channel, but also just as a as a standalone release that's that's exceptional. And you talk about the Buena Vista Social. Club, the Buena Vista right. Social Club, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then he's got some crime films and uh (laughs) there's just a there's a varied output but it definitely does feel vendorsian is that what you said did i say that right yeah that was that was
1: my little quip there (laughs) yeah yeah
0: what what has been your experience with vendors how did you come
1: across his work how did you respond
0: how are you doing today with it
1: well yeah i mean he's a he's a cool guy i mean he's one of these very accessible and appealing, um, humane, uh, intriguing, funny, self-disclosing directors who certainly has a lot of talent and a lot of, um, I, I think, charisma as, as, a, as an individual. Um, and his approach to filmmaking is personal, uh, it's expressive um, I think it's visionary to a certain extent. Um, yeah, and there are, there are some tendencies he has that I think uh, towards his later work, you know, kind of um, work against him or or there, you know. Th- perhaps had an undermining influence i mean these are even the films we're going to talk about today they are not beyond criticism uh in particular the second and the third mm-hmm. but i think they are still really fascinating um kind of documents from a, a a very perceptive and creative individual who also um whether it's by luck or talent or or instinct uh, or you know just kind of st- clearly strategically identifying uh, productive collaborators, Surrounded himself with some really ex- exceptional individuals uh, who took on different roles. I'm talking about you know, cinematographer, director of photography, Robbie Mueller, uh, you know, Rudiger Vogler, the, the the kind of lead figure that ties these three films together, as well as you know uh, actors like Hanna Shigula, Natasha Kinsky, and some of the other supporting members. I mean, it, it's it's a whole package here. You've you've really got a lot of um, great elements coming together to make films that are. Are memorable and distinctive, and um, and important, and you know. So, so as far as my experience with vendors, I mean, I've seen Paris, Texas. It's been a while since I've revisited. I just talked about it a little bit, but I really am overdue to kind of re-examine that one, especially as it kind of was the the immediate follow-up to these three films. Uh, Wings of Desire, of course, is kind of his other big canonical. You know, a masterpiece, and then the films you've already talked about: the Pina, Buena Vista Social Club, uh, the American Friend. I rewatched that a while back uh, with Dennis Hopper, kind of getting Hopper back into sort of a mainstream or giving him an opportunity to do his thing after he'd kind of fallen out of favor. So, you know, yeah, he's definitely a very significant director. Uh, obviously, very involved with the whole New German Cinema. Uh, you and I uh, have talked about uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder and kind of his. Emergence as an important director in Germany, and 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 as is like right there, maybe just a little bit behind him in terms of chronology, and then Werner Herzog as well. Kind of those are the three big names, and then you know you've got others as well. But uh, you know the, the, these are really pivotal figures in getting um, German cinema and really even just the German cultural perspective and attitude back up on screen. After really kind of disappearing for decades, I know, you and I have talked about that as well. Where, you know, Germany was the, the center of such incredible cinematic breakthroughs in the 1930s, and then, and then the Nazis come in, and and everything is just completely devastated. Uh, you know, people flee the country, and even though there are German films that are made in those intervening decades, none of them really seem to have you know, artistic merit or weight or at least exposure, maybe I'll just put it that way, yeah. until you get into the late 60s, early 70s, and then you've got directors like, you know, Fassbinder, Herzog, and, and Venders that I've just mentioned as kind of uh, new voices. Uh, Margareta of as well uh, from the female director's side. Uh, and I think even Hannah Shagula did a little bit of directing later on. So, you know, it it, it is very, very worthwhile to get... um all of all of these uh, voices back into the conversation, and I think you know, vendors like you say he makes himself very accessible. He's very happy to sit down for an interview to talk about his films. He picks interesting subjects. He takes risks and and chances. Um, so yeah, he's absolutely an important director if you really want to just follow kind of modern twentieth century cinema. And uh, even though it seems like maybe he's, he's not anywhere near the prominence that he used to be, you know, absolutely a figure worth uh, engaging with.
0: And maybe that's a good moment to talk about the box set's supplements. Just mm-hmm. because you brought up how much vendors is willing to sit down for interviews. For me, that is the strength of this box set. supplemental features are all of the vendors' uh, specific interviews, features. And there aren't... Very many <laughs> for a set like this. I, I I'd forgotten. You know, this came out oh, you know five or six years ago now, mm-hmm. and that's when I first saw these films, and that's the last time I saw them as well. Was when the set came out, and I was surprised to go back to it and think, you know, this is relatively sparse in terms of special features. You've got some of his earliest short works. Uh, the sa- same player shoots again in 1967 and silver city revisited in 1968 and then you i think you've really got interviews for the most part there is another yeah. um short uh little little featurette on the restoration of these films that happened early you know about 10 years ago or so 10 5 10 years ago i always love those but other than mm-hmm. that it's the interviews and it's Vendors himself that I think uh, really adds that color and still manages to make me feel incredibly satisfied with w- the the features. So yeah, you, I'm, I'm with you. He He's thoughtful and articulate about what his craft is. And there is a humanity to him. or uh, humaneness, I guess, is a better way of putting mm-hmm, it. I mean, mm-hmm. Hopefully there's a little bit of humanity in most of us. But um, <laughs> the humaneness is there that really makes those features special to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean if you want to talk about sort of how the new German cinema maybe compares to other new waves, I I, I kind of see vendors as the true foe to like Fassbinder's Godard. If that's a Oh, that is a great yeah, yeah. great <laughs> comparison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Fassbinder and Godard have that kind of edgy sort of uh, acerbic confrontational aspect. Uh, vendors and Truffaut I mean they certainly will will push the boundaries a little bit and and surprise you um, but they they have that warmth and that and that sort of more compassionate uh, sometimes more of a bemused take on the the the, the quirks of humanity uh, whereas Fassbinder and Goddard are just a little bit more uh, sort of condemning and 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 kind of almost accusing I mean they kind of Push it right in your face, whereas vendors and, and and Truffaut are like, yeah, hey, we've all got our issues, right? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> well, we're all vendors, these together, right?
0: Vendors and Truffaut also in their films seem to have a, a more reverential take mm-hmm. on cinema and oh, on the yeah. history of cinema than than Fassbender and and Godard, even though both of them have their takes on cinema. Again, yeah. it's it's a it's an anarchist take in a way, whereas these can be almost. If you're on that other side, I'm imagining frustratingly quaint at times in their perspective on the history of film and this mm-hmm. their their takes on that. That's a that's a great comparison, David. <laughs>
1: well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so that that's pretty. Oh, much I really also want to add one other thing. So go ahead. Well, on the supplements, the other thing I really liked were the outtakes that that uh, I think for Alice in the Cities and for Kings of the Road. There are, they filmed a lot of stuff for both of those. I think Wrong Move is a little bit more of the exception because they had a script and they stuck to it and they pretty much just filmed that movie. But for Alice in the Cities and and Kings of the Road, there was a very improvisational component to the filmmaking which resulted in you know hundreds if not well and kings of the road thousands many thousands of feet of film that were never used and yet what you have uh, as sort of bonus features on the discs are what i would also kind of compare as mini uh, alternate cuts of the movies mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> they arrange those outtakes sequentially so you can kind of revisit the movie in more of like a 15 to 20 minute you know uh kind of burst rather than you know having to sit through the whole thing which compared with kings of the road you know almost three hours it's was like okay that's that's a commitment right there so th- those are nice little um you know goodies that that, that kind of got tossed in there and i'm really glad especially with kings of the road i, I think they he shot over like 100,000 feet of film, in fact, well over that. And so there's lots and lots of material. I don't know if it was multiple takes or, you know, just pillow shots or, or you know, B-roll or whatever. But uh, it was cool that they were able to select some of the best highlights and then put some soundtrack to it just to kind of give you that vibe. So um, I, I definitely hmm. want to endorse that and, and point that out as a, as a pretty enjoyable aspect of the set.
0: And because these films are so meandering in a mm-hmm. good way, I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I do like them and we'll get into that. You can watch these outtakes and it isn't like watching outtakes from, you know, blockbusters where you're like, oh, I'm, I can see why they took that out. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, they're different ideas. This almost feels like, oh, they also had the camera running at this particular time of the, the trip or, uh, you know, this particular uh, conversation. They don't feel different. They don't feel out of place. These mm-hmm. outtakes. So yeah, they're, they're, it's a, it's a, it's a good set. Um, if you're looking at the the back and you're thinking, oh, you know, where are all the visual essays or all of, all of that? There are some good um, essays in the booklet that comes with it. But what you really have is vendors <laughs> talking about this stuff and some commentaries uh, about them as well. Uh, normally we talk about this stuff at the end of the episode, mm-hmm. and I kind of thought, well, you know. That might feel anticlimactic to some people, so you, you gave a really good segue into talking about it this time, so I appreciate that. Sure. But let me get back to vendors and talk about my own experience with him. Uh, I came to him like probably many of our listeners through his uh, two big ones of the 1980s because they were what were they, they were the films released by Criterion, you know, Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas. and really did latch on to both of them really enjoyed them but didn't know you know at the time maybe 10 or 15 years ago that there was so much more to explore and that i would i would eventually come to think of vendors as if not one of my favorite directors at least one of those directors that i really admire and always think is worth sitting down and engaging with in his films uh but the only one that i've seen that is not out on criterion as a physical release is uh, the goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick his 1972 film, his second his second feature film? But other than that, I will admit I'm I'm kind of stuck in the uh, Criterion uh, whatever they've released is to me what is worth watching for when it comes to vendors. Not that I believe that. That's just where I've accessed the films, mm-hmm. and so that's been my experience. I've seen the, you know that that one, uh, and I think I probably saw it on the Criterion Channel. <laughs> so thanks to them again for that. And then I've seen this trilogy. I love The American Friend, and then I've gotten into the 80s and 90s with what they have. And I actually still have not seen. Um, I can't even think of how the the title is it until the end of
1: until the end of the
0: world, right? Until mm-hmm. the end of the world. I was going to say until the end of time. I apologize for that. I, I've never seen that one because honestly, it, it intimidates me. Uh, <laughs> I think I think I remember you sitting down with mm-hmm. it when it came out and yeah. hearing some of your thoughts.
1: Yeah, it was a end of twenty nineteen release, I believe, and 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 it had been pretty hotly anticipated for for many years. It was. It's a very long movie. I think it pushes like four hours, um, and You know, certainly has its critics. Again, as being a little bit overindulgent, uh, you know, way meandering. Um, There are people who don't really appreciate William Hurt and his mannerisms as an actor. I I thought it was fine, but I I can, I can see some of the point. You know, there, I say there are some really devastating criticisms of that film. Yeah, I still feel it's pretty important, and and I I enjoyed the experience. I mean, Bender's is definitely he's experimenting with digital video, and it's it's a global scale road movie. Uh, I think with a great cast, with a very cool soundtrack i think even barnes and noble released a limited edition double album mm-hmm. vinyl copy of the soundtrack which i really should have gotten mm-hmm. but i didn't maybe i'll still be able to track that down so you know did it, keith
0: did keith snag that i i oh, want to say yeah. i saw that on online I'm yeah sure keith, was keith, keith. keith was all <laughs> keith Enright was all over
1: that one um so yeah it's it's um it's a debatable uh important work you know I won't call it a masterpiece just because I think there's not quite that consensus but I I really like I say I, I enjoyed it I'm glad I sat through it I, I look forward to revisiting it again so uh, but that's that's the other big one although for like I say for some people that kind of marked the the decline of him as a narrative filmmaker and he's done some good documentary work. Uh, since then and it seems maybe he's in a more of a retirement type of phase at this point um, which is which is fine he's he's got a great body of work behind him and we'll see maybe he'll surprise us with something else uh, as uh, you know he go, goes through life but yeah that's that's the big one that is probably still waiting to be discovered by some folks
0: yeah well including me I need to do it I honestly, because I think it's not so much intimidation by its size, it might be because of its reputation. I don't really want that to be the the next Vendors film I see, but I, I need to get to it someday. Yeah, <laughs> especially I... in light of revisiting these films, because it pops up again and again as you're reading about these films. You know, him him kind of going back to to this style a little bit in there. I need to do it. I should have done it for this episode, clearly. But... I didn't. So. Well,
1: it, it, it's, it's a lot. I mean, you know, it's, like I say, almost four hours, and, and it's it's a commitment of sorts just to, you know, stay focused and, and block out the other things and, and get into that film. So, hey, I understand we're all busy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a lot going on. And these films are not um,
0: not terribly long, except for Kings of the Road. But they do feel like trips. So why don't oh, yeah. we get into mm-hmm. the the trilogy in general? I mean, this this these are slow films. They're pensive films. They can be meandering films. Uh, maybe it's sometimes aimless
1: if you're That's feeling a bad like thing, right? well we're right if you're feeling like you need to have a story that kind of moves through the conventional notions you know what's the initial conflict what's the setup you know how 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 is this resolved and and where does it end up yeah there there's there's definitely kind of a new approach to storytelling i, I won't say that vendors invented it you know but he's he's picking up on some themes that uh, were kind of laid out in some of those hangout movies of the late '60s, early '70s, and building on that, I think he he's actually you know creating uh, an influence that would um, you know go on to have a pretty big effect on directors like Jim Jarmusch, I think of Korizmaki, and and many others, uh, even Terrence Malick, you know, in terms of combining cinematography of a ravishing sumptuous variety with stories that just kind of drift and take you along on a journey um, you know, vendors was there sort of at the at the beginning of this era of of what you might call more like modern filmmaking rather than uh, the the conventional plot driven stories that kind of give you the setup the premise and then you know the conflict and the resolution at the end you know the, the Hollywood style if you will uh, he's he's not necessarily you know going to cater to that if that's what you're looking to the movie to provide um, but he's he's going to show you other things he's going to show you the textures of landscapes uh, of people you know in in dialogue with each other where there's no you know point of saying let's make this snappy and and kind of propulsive you know they're just they are just kind of hanging out contemplating life sorting out their personal situation and figuring out you know what to do next and it doesn't always go well and there's not always a real purpose or point to each scene sometimes it's very understated and and um, you know the the viewer sort of has to figure out you know how to relate to this and do they want to get on board with the ride or do they want to keep some distance and and critique it as saying this isn't giving me what I'm looking for. I think that's that's the thing. You've got to sort of agree to go along where Vendors and his crew are going to take you. And if you don't, then these films become a little bit more problematic and, and maybe not as satisfying. So, yeah, there's a decision mm-hmm. that you have to make as a viewer to say, where where do I want to go with this? Do I want to join up or do I want to keep my distance?
0: And I think it's also important to note that these are early films for vendors, and I don't mean that to be a slight against them in terms of their accomplishments. But he himself was searching for himself. He was he made Alice in the Cities uh, apparently based on the features that we get here, because he was trying to see if he was actually a filmmaker, and he'd made a few shorts and a couple of features before this this trilogy of films that starts in 74 and then goes 75, 76, you know, all three films coming out close together. But he was apparently still trying to figure out who he was and whether or not this was actually for him. So there is a searching quality in in his work as well and in the techniques that they're using. But he really does seem to have stuck with people. I mean, he, he's got uh, this the same... People show up again and again in these in these three films. The ideas are, are somewhat... Uh, well, some of the ideas are consistent throughout. And so he is finding his voice. And that's, I think, the thing that's special about them. This is not early and, oh, you can see him trying this and it fails. I actually think Alice in the Cities is one of those special, near-perfect films. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's the result of him and his searching and coming up with that that story and the the way of filming it it's not his story i guess he he worked an awful lot with peter Handke, in in these films and later on in his career as well and that's that's actually become problematic for me i'll get into that with the when we get to the wrong move but uh for for alice in the cities this is based on a peter Handke story and it's beautiful and it's lovely. I, I think that it would be hard to not be charmed by that movie. Uh, but yes, yeah, similar to, you know, even the early works of Fossbinder, I think you do have to, to to be invested in what they're doing and then their work and letting them go there, just having a little bit of faith that they have a vision and that it's going to pay off, rather than oh, did this did they do this the way that I that I, I'm used to seeing it that will help me, you know, give me the signposts and help me follow along. It's not always that that way with with these, but but I I do really like these films. Um, anything else on the the trilogy in general? I mean, there there we could talk about the cast right now, but maybe we'll, that'll be more normal as we get into the films. Um, it is notable that each of, each was filmed in different film stock. He filmed Alice in the Cities in sixteen millimeter black and white, and then Wrong Move in thirty five millimeter color, and then he goes back to black and white, and but still, but this time thirty five millimeter for Kings of the Road, but every time he's using Robbie Mueller as mm-hmm. his uh, cinematographer, who continues to do great black and white. I mean, he did. He did Dead Man with uh, Jim Jarmusch. You, you mm-hmm. mentioned Jarmusch a little bit ago. I mean, clearly these guys are are all like you know giving each other high fives as they <laughs> go about their work. But
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm already to get right into Alice. I think that that is right. the definitely the most charming and winsome movie of the three. Probably the one that has the most universal appeal and accessibility. And it is. It is just a a, a wonderful, uh, delightful story uh, about a very unlikely, you know, coming together between an adult man uh, a 9-year-old girl. Uh it sounds problematic just to even yeah, putting it in yeah. that, <laughs> that that context there. Um but it really kind of I think redeems um Vender's, you know, self-imposed query. You know, he, I think the the movie that preceded this was his adaptation of The Scarlet Letter which he considers mm-hmm. a failure. And, and even maybe somewhat of a disaster, which is what raised all those questions. I mean, he 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 knew he had a gift. He, he was a gifted photographer, and, um, you know, he wrote screenplays, so he, he could have done a lot of different things. But being a director was kind of where he was at, and, and I think, you know, he was just doing some evaluation. And as it turns out, Alice in the Cities, um, on this pretty humble low budget uh, 16 millimeter black and white i mean that's uh, yeah that seems to be sort of a concession to the fact that he could only scrape so many marks together to to make a film and uh and yet he still had the capacity to go into the USA to do some road trips there and then also to meander around europe a little bit uh in, in weaving the story together so again it's not just the the uh, technical skills but also just the um, focus and and the the cohesion of keeping his crew together and providing leadership and giving all of these talents a chance to express themselves and get caught on film uh, that I think you know set the stage for him to continue on and to deliver some really amazing films um, in the in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, so this one's my favorite. It's almost hard yeah. to talk about it first because, but but I do have good things to say about you know the other ones too but let's let's get into it this is a film about uh, a man who's at at a failing point as well who might be questioning whether he can do his job whether he is of any value and what he's going to do next if he finds out that he can't do his job Uh, Rutger Volger who is the, the the protagonist you know the main character in each of these three films and continues to work with vendors throughout his career. Uh, he plays a man named Philip Vinter. And when we meet him at the beginning, he is on assignment in America to write a, a, a piece, a journalistic piece on, on America, you know, in the early 1970s. And his deadline has come... And he doesn't have anything but a whole bunch of Polaroids as he's driven around. <laughs> he is taking yeah. pictures of various things. And, you know, it, 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 I'll be honest, that's one of the things that this film does for me too, is it, it shows old streets and old, oh, old familiar, <laughs> you know, things that, I mean, I grew up in rural Idaho. And so some of this stuff is still how these towns look today, but it's just beautiful to, to look at. Yeah, but gas his, stations it, with a dirt
1: driveway and two little mm-hmm. pumps, kind of just standing out there in isolation. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, great. But his his publisher sees no value in this and
0: <laughs> fires yeah. him and tells him better get back to to Germany. <laughs> I was surprised though at how late in the film that actually happens it's you're about 20 minutes in before he gets terminated and sent back packing. And this isn't a long film. You know, what is it? Not quite two hours, hour and 50 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that all happening so much sooner in the film, but it's because there's so much richness in this part that it, I don't know. It, it almost, this whole film is, it was surprising to me this time around to see how it plays out structurally. Because it's kind of seeped out of a film to me and become more like actual time and lived memory, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and including his trip around the U.S. and those photographs and baseball games and various things like that. And it's it's at that point though when he's terminated, he goes to uh, to to get back to Germany. There is a strike at the airport; or the German you know um, workers are striking, so it's very difficult to get back home to Germany and who is there but a uh, a woman and her daughter and i don't know do you want to take it away from there for a second david
1: yeah well basically it's just a very chance encounter you know he he needs to get back in fact we're kind of uh kind of kind of fed the idea kind of a you know kind of for a foreshadowing uh through a newspaper headline he he checked out a german newspaper at a newsstand in New York City cuz he, he's come up from the Carolinas that's kind of where the film opens you know he's just kind of again checking out the american south he's got this fancy polaroid camera you know you mentioned the polaroids I and mean, and it's pretty been it made pretty clear in the commentary that this was Pretty innovative technology for the time. I mean, uh, he had like a test model or a prototype camera, so that in itself was was kind of unique. And and I have memories of Polaroids from the the mid seventies, so you, you sort of can take that for granted. But yeah, this was kind of the new technology. People had not seen this little square of film that develops itself before your eyes. Uh, so that that's kind of a cool little throwback reference there. But once he's recognized that, you know, this this Uh, this adventure of of capturing the essence of America really hasn't worked out except for the visuals. He's, He's kind of a blocked writer and doesn't know how to put his thoughts into words. Um, you know, he he has to find his way back. And so, yeah, this is where he has this chance encounter with this woman. She doesn't speak very good English, so he's kind of doing a little bit of interpretation thing for her at the ticket counter, as they're all kind of stuck. You know, the the flights back to, to Germany are very limited. In fact, they can't get you into Germany. They can get you into Amsterdam, and then you're going to have to bus it or train it from there. And, and so he kind of meets up with this woman. Of course, there's a little bit of a, an attraction, a chemistry there. You know, they're both young, single care for you obviously she's got a daughter so you know you you can sort of read into that some complicated personal history uh they they get to a hotel room they're going to catch a flight the next day uh but then after this little encounter the you know the mother explains to uh Peter, the, the the protagonist here, that she's got some complicated issues going on with a with a, a boyfriend, a lover at this time. And, and she basically gets pulled back into that guy's world and ends up, you know, doing some crisis management, writes him a goodbye note and says, I'll meet you at the airport or I'll meet you at the Empire State Building. Hang in there with me. But, you know, b- basically she's stringing him along and makes a decision that I think is, you know, Presses the limits of plausibility for some women or viewers in general. Uh, why would a woman just leave her daughter with this stranger that she's just met the day before? Uh, you again. This is this is a jumping off point. Uh, are you going to let that stand in your way, or are you going to say, you know, this was the early seventies, and there were people who lived life pretty loosely compared to maybe how children are raised today? So you, you didn't live. I mean, as a as a child myself at that time, I was not you know concerned about being abducted or or whatever. and so uh, there there is a there's a freedom and an openness even a a blatant irresponsibility <laughs> on display here. but it turns out that uh peter and uh alice the the titular figure of the of the film um wind up together mom basically flakes out and the the girl doesn't exactly know where she needs to go but they do find their way back to amsterdam and she says well i can go to my grandmother's house here's a photograph but you know that even turns into a bit of a, a charade or a ruse <laughs> because she you know she's young she's like 9 years old she doesn't know her way around she's not a driver she doesn't really have a even a good sense of direction so it's pretty understandable I, but yeah what a what a dilemma right
0: I love that they're trying to figure out where she lives. And so he pulls out a bunch of names of towns <laughs> yeah, to yeah. see which one strikes a chord. And sure. then they are like, oh, that one sounds familiar. Okay, let's go there.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very loosey-goosey, you know. And um, But yeah. but
0: what else does he have to go on? Right. I mean, he is in this situation. He's not cruel enough to just abandon her no, again. Right, I he mean, does she's... fill this responsibility. So, what is he to do? He can't wait for. They do wait. They wait. They yeah. keep waiting for the mom. Again, I was surprised at how much time passes before they get on that flight to Germany. It's yeah. forty five minutes into this short. Film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they they are waiting, and then when they get there, they're waiting for her to show up. And finally, well, you got to move. You know, he's running out of money. You got to get. You got to find something. the The best solution was to run off a list of cities and see which one this nine-year-old latches onto and hope that maybe when you get there, you'll find her relatives, yeah. you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hold up the photograph and find a match for the house, right. you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: I wouldn't y- do that if you told me, like, I, you know, you live in this city, and maybe you know you gave me three streets i'd be like well i can't find you I'm sorry <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: well and at what at what point do you get the authorities involved and say look i've got an unaccompanied child here um i, I want to make sure she's taken care of and supervised but y'all are going to have to help me out figure out where she needs to go so you know there is this kind of again improvisational diy thing going on he's going to just have to you know see if if they can land safely and and figure out where she needs to to, to wind up but but so much of you know this this is the, the plot you know as as thin and again mm-hmm. perhaps implausible as mm-hmm. it is Everyone's thinking why yeah. do
0: you guys like this movie it sounds yeah. weird and implausible <laughs> But mm-hmm.
1: but it but it is um it is that relationship that develops it's it's the candor and the naturalness of the you know the, the bond and it's a big, again because of uh the performances this this young girl yella is her first name i can't remember her last name at the moment but um she has this this uh, kind of freedom and expression and and as a director vendors gave her uh that you know that that opportunity just to sort of play each scene the way she would rather than giving her you know quippy little you know precocious lines or or things like that i mean some of that comes through but it's it it feels very natural and and directed by the child rather than uh you know by a screenwriter or somebody who's trying to sort of create this whimsical character you know and and i think that's that's really the charm as well as again the landscapes the cinematography all of that uh the aesthetics of the film um the music, all of those are really mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. powerful elements that that draw us in and, and win us over.
0: Her name is Yella Rutlander. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about her either. I looked her up because, you know, she was nine years old. It made me think, oh, did she become someone that I would recognize? Has she been in, you know, f- big films over the last... I, and I didn't recognize any. She She was apparently in The Scarlet Letter... Yeah, uh, the year before. But other than that, I
1: really don't know much more of her work. Well, oh, I think that, I... that she got cast because she and Vogler had a little kind of improvised scene where he was playing a, a recorder, you know, a little uh, wind instrument, and she would pick it up from him and played with it, and, and he kind of put her fingers in the right place. And it was just, uh, Vendor said it was probably the one improvised moment from The, the Scarlet Letter, and he just really kind of liked that and kind of kept her in mind and, and that's how she got landed in this role. He he kind of said, let's put those two together and mm-hmm. let that chemistry recreate itself if, if we can do that. And that's exactly what happened and uh yeah, she is featured as a as, of course as a full grown adult in in one of the interviews tracks. I think she's also on the commentary track where vendors and vogler and and Yella are all talking as they watch the movie, uh-huh. which is kind of a nice throwback uh you know uh, kind of getting into their memories of of making this film
0: and i' thinking of other reasons why you know i like this film because it's true as you're going through the plot line it's like oh is this some weird hallmarky kind of thing (laughs) you know or or a stranger danger is this going to turn dark it really doesn't there's something about the relationships and and also about time and space Mm -hmm. i want to say i don't Mm -hmm. know if there's a better way for me to put it but you get a feel for these atmospheres for them sitting down to have a meal when they really don't know each other yet for him getting frustrated about money, but wanting to still, you know, maybe let the child know, but also not. You know, because the, all of that feels, feels so familiar. And the you're right, the chemistry between them, just the the adult caring for a child and, and the friendship that develops there, it feels real, it feels familiar, it feels special, it feels uh, a, a way that, it feels reflective, and the the whole film, because it is a road movie, takes on that longer ambiance that I really really enjoy in this one. It's just it's special. I I don't know too how much of it might be the 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 sixteen millimeter black and white photography kind of adds a bit of a of a nostalgic edge for maybe mm-hmm. for me just mm-hmm. a little bit, but. I liked it even more this time than I did the first time I watched it. And I didn't expect that.
1: No, I I, I had the same experience. I watched it. This is the one film I had seen before. The other two were you know just recent discoveries for me so this was an extremely gratifying rewatch and i had watched it with my wife a few years ago probably pretty soon after the box set came out and and i think we enjoyed it but i you know i had heard a lot of great things about this film and and i would say probably the hype exceeded my initial response to it but now i'm right there <laughs> throwing out the hype because i think this is a <laughs> this is a delightful movie i mean it does have that time capsule function to it um uh, i mean you know basically any film made from this era has a bit of a time capsule just because you're you're you know capturing sights and sounds that you know the world has changed over the last 50 years but um this one in particular the fact that vendors and and Mueller can just sort of let the camera linger over streetscapes and and um you know jukeboxes and and diners and and hotel rooms and you know the little bit of, of where he's in the hotel room and and uh young mr lincoln is showing and it's just this fortuitous mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. moment there where they were just basically flipping on the dial to film whatever was showing they they didn't pump the video in they didn't have access to a tape there was no such thing as vhs at this time but the networks were showing classic movies as they did back in those days and you just had this beautiful little moment of Henry Fonda playing his little mouth harp there and 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 yet here you know it's just it's just those little synchronicities that that fall together that just make this such a such a wonderful little uh you know sit in the back seat and let them drive where they will and look out the window and just take in the sights and yeah, it is the, the, the way that the music kind of accentuates things. I mean, that happens in all of these films, but this one in particular is is just you know delightful and free and and fulfilling. You know, it's 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 mm-hmm. uh, that, that's those are the words that come to mind as I as I think about Alice in the Cities.
0: And I like that Philip Winter, you know, the the mm-hmm. character in the film. He, he's lost at the beginning, and it's not to say that he's found himself perfectly. This film doesn't necessarily wrap up in nice, tidy no. fashion, but there, he's made some progress. He's made this journey has has gotten him somewhere, somewhere new. He's got a, he's on a new step, and and I like that aspect of this particular film. It's it is it, it's hopeful. So now. Do we change the mood pretty
1: quick right now <laughs> to talk about wrong move? Um, yeah, not, I, I, not I guess quite we can, so hopeful. Or <laughs> yeah, I think I think we can keep it moving. I mean, again, there's there. I'll just say there's lots of content in all three of these films. Yeah, and I feel like we're kind of doing a kind of a, a, an overpass here, but you know, maybe in my own podcast <laughs> i'll get to these films and we'll dig in even deeper but you know the nature of this podcast is to kind of yeah you know give that kind of higher altitude uh perspective so yeah right i'm watching the, the move
0: i'm watching the clock here and thinking <laughs> hmm i would love to spend more time on alice in the cities but we've also got a lot of a lot to talk about in the next two films, and I, I quite different just,
1: stuff too, I yeah. think. Yeah, but let me just want one more thing about Alice in the Cities. Obviously, there's a mm-hmm. significant portion that takes place in New York City. We are recording on the morning of 9-11, 2021, and, and you know, uh-huh. the, mm-hmm. the World Trade Center makes a couple of appearances, both in close-ups, kind of up perspectives as well as... Uh, you know, farther distant shots as they're up on top of the Empire State Building. So, you know, not to get too distracted or pulled into that whole topic because that's vast and deep and, and heartbreaking. But, you know, it is another bit of that time capsule of, of uh, a moment in New York City in the early 70s. So just felt, you know, the need to mention that a bit.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That definitely, I I knew we were recording today yep. and I that stood out to me when I was watching it, but I hadn't put the two together in quite that way yeah it's it's an important it's an evocative film in in many ways i think i think it's probably the most accessible of all of the three that we're watching so if you're wary listeners and just want to know where do i start they're all available on the criterion channel and start with alice in the cities if you want to get into the road trilogy get some faith in vendors And then move on to a film that might shake that faith. (laughs) Speaking from personal experience. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Not to put all my cars on the table. Uh, Wrong Move, 1975. This film is in color. It's 35 millimeter. It's beautiful to watch again. And boy, it it goes in so many different different directions for me. And uh, quite the opposite of Alice in the Cities. I think I liked it a little bit less this time around i'm not saying it's a bad film i'm not trying to say that i'm contrasting it with what we've gotten before and saying my response to it is quite different uh and i kind of i have some reasons to go over as to why that is but that you said this was your first time uh going through it um, what did why don't you introduce it then a little bit i feel like i'm gonna gonna step on it a little bit if i if i do it
1: Sure, wrong move is uh again a pretty clear divergence from Alice in the cities. You've already mentioned sort of the technical things it's a color film uh it's it's closely scripted uh they followed the script and it's an adaptation of a classic work by Goethe, the you know great mm-hmm. genius of German literature who um uh, wrote as uh, so at the the uh, Wilhelm Meister, the Trials of Wilhelm Meister, or something like that. It's it's a what's what's the term Bildungsroman, uh, the story of a young man coming of age and and sort of making his way in the world. Uh, a long literary tradition. In fact, you probably have more to say about that than I do, just from a you know more fully informed perspective. But it, it's a young man uh, who leaves home and makes his way through society. Uh, as he's kind of figuring out where do I fit into all of this? So what is my purpose, um, and and so this is where you know vendors is kind of taking some liter again, sort of like with the Scarlet Letter. He's taking some classic literature, he's updating it into a very contemporary context. Uh, the Road movie aspect starts with uh, Glückstadt. It's a it's a small village on the very northern tip of Germany. Uh, And it ends up in this mountain at the very southern end of of that nation. Of course, this is all in West Germany, which was a divided— Germany was a divided nation at the time, and that definitely comes into play in um, Kings of the Road as Mm -hmm. well. So you've got got some social analysis in terms of the plight of Germany at this particular point in its history, uh, kind of, uh, you know— turf battles of the cold war uh, a society that is you know definitely at a crossroads in terms of which way do we go i mean even you know the communist capitalist divide but just as a society you know, what's going on and so you have wilhelm sort of stepping out and and not really knowing where he's going in fact he's kind of almost kicked out of his home by his mother she gives him some money and says it's time to go and he winds up uh, just kind of taking a train journey and encountering a, a few strangers, and they become a little bit of a crew. Although the relationships are continually strained, uh, there's an archness about this film. There's, I, I would even say, I get hmm. to the point of saying these are not real people. This is, this is not a, an actual story of. Human beings coming together and relating to each other in anything other than a very staged and programmatic way.
0: Do you mind if we? Yeah, I'd let be. I agree with you. Yeah, and so I want to take just a really quick side road. Sure. And talk about how much I do like the beginning of this film, though, when that's not apparent yet.
1: Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay.
0: Because you have you have Rudiger Vogler again playing the, the titular character, or the, the, the titular character, the, the main character. He's, his name is Wrong Move. No, just kidding. That would be crazy. <laughs> uh, he, he's just, he's the, the, the main character, he's, and he gets on that train at the beginning, and across from him is this older man and this younger woman. And a girl, out, really, yeah. A, a girl, yeah, Natasha Kinsky, Klaus Kinski's daughter, in her debut uh, film yep. appearance. And she'll show up in more Vendor's works later on. But, but they're across from him. And out the window is another woman. That's Hana Shagulia. I love how natural this felt. Because we've yeah. all been on these trips when you're like, Well, I guess this is the person I'm sitting by for who knows how long. And, you know, the glances and the... Yeah, is Who someone trying the to ignore... ice do you just ignore right. each
1: other or do you actually strike up a conversation, right. right?
0: All of that felt very natural and I I really loved that part. You know, the 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 almost start to imagine your relationship, uh, how is this going to go? Will we talk? Especially when he looks out the window and sees Hana Shigulia. He's already fantasizing um to to an extent, right? And she is there's the connection between their glances. She sees him too. Yeah, and, and the
1: trains are running in parallel for a significant uh, amount of time, so you really right. can sustain that eye contact. This isn't just a glance and a what if, but it's like, hmm, there might be something here, you know? <laughs> and you're recognizing that hey, we're,
0: we're somehow the universe has brought us together, yeah, in this strange way. I really like that first big part of this film and and knowing that he's uh, filled with unrest and discontent. as I think his mom put it (laughs) (laughs) as various astute mother. I I love that part of the film. It's not until later on where I go, this is really ponderous. And I use that word as (laughs) with all of its negative baggage in, in instead of pensive, which I think has a little bit more, you know, positive connotation to it, but ponderous film, I kind of blame uh Honka for this i mean he won the nobel prize a few years ago he knows sure. what he's doing to an extent but i don't i don't like hanka his uh, i don't know if you've really delved into him at all no
1: i mean uh, really this this trilogy was my introduction to him as a figure so i really have no context to you know, name drop or anything like that so i'm very fascinated to hear more about your take on hanka as well, a writer
0: just briefly then, I mean, as a writer, I do have some of his work and it's one of the only writers where later on in life I've thought, you know, I should probably get rid of this stuff <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. he's a pretty reprehensible person and his politics are a part of that. He's He was supportive of Slobodan Milosevic's regime uh-huh. and both in, in time and in retrospect, like it's not something that he thought later on, well, better not. So this is like someone, you know, I'm still in... It, Still with Hitler kind of thing, you know, defending what, what happened under his regime and the, the atrocities that he committed. And when he won the Nobel Prize, it was it was a year, there was a year when no one won the Nobel Prize because of its own committee issues. Yeah. They had their their problems. And so the next year they awarded it to two people. Mm-hmm. Olga Tukarczyk, a Polish writer, a woman who who really did not deserve to win it alongside Peter Honka who won the other part of it. They gave two out that year. And he took up all of the, the headlines because of his checkered past and his politics. It just really felt unfair to her to to have that uh, that attached to her name. But he won the Nobel Prize, and I'll be honest, it's hard to watch a film like Wrong Move where it gets into the atrocities of mm-hmm. Nazi Germany yeah. and, and where they're kind of talking about all of that and not wonder now what the heck is this guy thinking you know what what is what what am i missing here and and to distrust the film so i think that's one of the reasons why this went down and i also every time that you got a voiceover i i guess my skin just crawled a little there's a lot this is a very talky movie and especially in in relation to kings of the road or even alice in the cities this is exceptionally talky there's a lot of static moments where they're sitting down talking past each other, you know, one character's got these issues. It's like watching uh, a pretty pretentious uh, stage play at times where, (laughs) you know, what you're supposed to do is really just watch people standing in a room, not looking at each other, talking in soliloquies, uh, you know, apart from each other. Uh, That's how I felt at times. Now I I like the film still. I still have, I'm still positive on it, but those are the things that are, that are pulling it down for me and making it, Harder for me to connect again to these people and I, I like all of the actors i like I like generally the feel of the film, but yeah, this time it just stood out so much more artificially and suspect you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or as my kids would say sus you know? Cause <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go,
1: yeah, I think ponderous, the word that you used earlier on was it was pretty pretty accurate because as and as I said earlier as well uh, you you can get on board with this movie or the movie itself gives you reasons to say uh no thanks you know uh the characters um besides not necessarily being realistic i mean the fact that uh the hana character is apparently this successful actress you know beautiful as always and and kind of has her own career going would she really ditch everything just to go hang out with this dude that she glanced i mean that that and and hardly hang out like walk
0: up and down streets with your hands in your pocket and your head just downcast like yeah (laughs) it's the times they're not talking is when they're walking (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and and,
1: and it is It's, it's very stagey very theatrical you you have that that i mean it's both interesting and kind of fascinating as an exercise when those those long walks up the curvy mountain road there where they're kind of in their different combinations every every you know uh, kind of different hookup or or different combination of the of this crew of five kind of has their little moment of dialogue Uh, and so there is something kind of um intriguing about that, but at the same time, it's like it just feels so you know art so much artifice is in, involved in, in putting this together. Uh you've also got this this horrible poet, you know, this this man who sort of aspires to be this literary <laughs> figure. And I do like all, that part too where it's, he it's, his it's, first it's, poem. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very funny, but in this kind of you know, tragic comic way because his poem is just so horrible and so repulsive you know and, and he himself mm-hmm. is not a very appealing character uh the 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 older man and the younger girl we again we've talked about the problematic aspects of you know these underaged girls you know kind of being accompanied by men who you know their moral character their interests may not be of the most wholesome sort even though there's well, I, yeah. In the in the in the case here, this this mute girl, she's kind of a street performer, a juggler, an acrobat, uh, got a little magician thing going on, and she's a bit of a pickpocket. So you can sort of see this this older man who's kind of uh, picked her up and providing a little bit of supervision. You know, it's not implied that he's pimping her out or anything like that, but there's definitely kind of an unseemly aspect to this. Uh, she may be. Uh, a bit exploited. Um, so there's that. And, and then he himself was an Olympic athlete in the 32 Olympics. He didn't make it to the finals, but he was part of the Nazi uh, system there and doesn't seem to have too many compunctions about the part he played within that system. You know, he, he openly expresses his prejudice toward, you know, black athletes and, and others. Uh, you've got this suicidal uh, businessman, an industrialist, I guess is how he's referred to in the film, uh, who owns this kind of Baroque type of castle, almost uh, a mansion. And so you've got some stagey scenes there, including one where, uh, again, the, the Vogler character, um, Peter Vint, or is it, is it? No, Wilhelm is his name in this film, right? But he right. he ends up, you know, he, he, he seems to be intent on having an encounter with uh, the Hana Shigula character as she kind of whispers a come on in his ear. He makes his way upstairs, finds a, a nude woman, uh, you know lays with her and then finds out it's this girl and and it was N- Nastasius Kinsky when she was like 13 years old. So again, that's a, a pretty you mm-hmm. know troublesome stuff there and and may you know definitely cause some discomfort. Uh and and appropriately reasonably so. So these are things of kind of that that era that you have to sort of grapple with and and that may not sit very well with with many viewers. Uh, and and I certainly can understand that. Uh, so then you've got the the suicidal binge there you know and and there's there's a lot of suicide there's a lot of you know existential angst and and um, alienation that kind of runs through all of these films they in fact they kind of get even more pronounced with those themes uh, in the next one Kings of the road. so you can see vendors uh, is is grappling with just you know even fundamental questions like, purpose and identity and and um, you know what's the point of it all Uh, and because this film plays as more serious and doesn't have that as much of that comic undertone again the word ponderous comes to mind because you're kind of laying all these heavy themes on the viewer and uh, some people just may not be here for that you know that just may not match their mood it it might seem a bit indulgent and pretentious so you know if if that's kind of a response to this film and it sounds like maybe you had a little bit more of that um yeah, <laughs> I, yeah that, did I let
0: you... I, did, did I the cat out of the bag there is that...
1: <laughs> well I I think I think it just it just is a kind of a sense of you know does it does it connect with where you are you know or is it the kind of movie you're in the mood for um that That's kind of a fundamental question here, uh, because it doesn't necessarily lead towards a satisfying resolution of it all. I mean, these, these troubling questions about what's the purpose of it all, is life even worth living, uh, What's what are the prospects for Germany as a society, um, you know, those questions are all kind of left pretty open-ended at the end of the film, and so... If you're here coming for a resolution or some kind of editorial, you know, um, uh, kind of statement, uh, you're, you're not necessarily going to get much uh, along that line. And so, yeah, are you able mm-hmm. to just enter in and, and step back out of it with some questions being raised? And, and again, beautiful images, a, a bit of a travelogue of, of Germany at this time, and um You know, some, I think, very fascinating performances. I definitely love seeing Hanna Shagula outside of the Fassbender context. Um, You know, and the commentary track vendors talks about uh, he felt that she was a bit wooden in her performance and that he takes responsibility himself. He doesn't think that she, you know, failed to deliver, that he just doesn't have the same gift of directing women as his friend Fassbender did, um, I said, well, you know what, uh, Vim, um, all of your characters are kind of wooden in this film, so <laughs> you don't really need to uh, single out <laughs> Hanna Shigula here. Everybody's sort of boxed in by the script that they're given and the, the function that they're asked to perform. Because, like I say, these, are, these, these characters felt to me like archetypes and symbols and, and even pawns on a chessboard rather than actual people. Yeah, they once they've
0: served their purpose, they exit stage left, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and that's kind of it. I will say though, uh, that the problematic aspect with Nastasia Kinsky is definitely there, and and that that's that's a tough tough thing. Uh, but I do like Mignon. I I think that some of the whimsical parts with her because she's a mute and kind of performs for things, you know, uh, and and I don't mean performs totally an exploitation, though that's part of it. Uh, But she's like a clown at times. You know, she juggles, she does handstands and, and both to make money out on the street but also that's how when they've kind of hoodwinked Uh, the the Wilhelm character into paying for their passage that's how she pays him is by doing some tricks in the train car Mm -hmm. that sounds you know now that we know where this goes that sounds such a negative way of putting it but I just mean circus tricks um and I I do like her in it I again it goes back to me those those initial encounters I did enjoy I like it when Wilhelm realizes what they've done and they're smiling at him and everyone realizes it's going to be okay. <laughs> this guy's going to play along. He's going to pay for us. We're going to be all right. But then it just kind of, you know, gets into that more philosophically dense but not necessarily satisfying or even direction, you know, based uh, stuff that that gets on. I think it starts to starts to kind of fall apart in that way for me. But yeah, beautiful scenery, beautiful images. Uh, probably some intriguing stuff. If I could also kind of get around my issues now with Peter Hantke and and not see him behind every voiceover, and and makes me question everything the film is is talking about when it comes to these these characters. And they're again, particularly with the 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 atrocities of the of Nazi Germany and such, just as to, to see where he has been, just was was concerning to me. And I don't know where he was in the seventies. You know, I don't know a ton about him. So I, I need to step off of this. I didn't know I would respond this way. Just so you know, David, this, yeah. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever like said words about this. You were this film. laying in wait, ready to pounce. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you watch these films by yourself and you don't talk to anybody about them and yeah. you're annoyed, but you don't necessarily articulate why. And then, and then, and then you podcast about it. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: again, I I remember hearing about the controversy about the Nobel, but I had not associated Hanka's name with this as the winner of that prize. I have read "Flights" by Olga Togarchuk. I think is her name. So I do have that connection to that particular issue or that scene. But yeah, the fact mm-hmm. that like, here's an, again just another incredible collaboration between vendors and a future Nobel Prize winner. I mean, despite yeah, whatever will go on problematic for years issues. Too. there. Yeah, right. I mean, he's involved
0: like, in yeah. in Paris, Texas. Again, I mean, mm-hmm. They, they, mm-hmm. they're clearly working together and. I've got to maybe just realize maybe some of this is that old age, con, you know, conservatism seeping into Hanukkah <laughs> that wasn't there at this time of of, of of life.
1: Well, or or that you know, you know, they're all all of these, you know, Mueller himself, the actors—they're all part of this. You know, I'll call it Bohemian, although I know technically they're not Bohemians <laughs> in the strict sense, but but they're they're kind of this indie artistic um, community that's out there, kind of you know expanding the frontiers creative expressions um kind of rubbing up against the status quo mm-hmm. uh, but you know and and you know as some listeners may know i have a, a background in sort of the punk rock scene of the san francisco bay area in the early 1980s played in a band for a few years and i've seen people that i was very closely associated with in that scene which was a pretty radical you know cultural uh moment, if you will, Uh, I've seen their politics go incredibly divergent, extreme right wing, extreme left wing. I consider myself a moderate, although I'd probably be classified more on the liberal side. But it's like we were all together in these clubs, hanging out, doing all the stuff that we did. And life has just brought us in all different directions. and, And we've been shaped and formed by influences that, you know, some of us look at and say, Really, you went for that, <laughs> or you, or that's how you're thinking now, and it, it wrong feels like move, wow, buddy, yeah, wrong, wrong move. move, right? So yeah, there there, um, people are complicated. People have beliefs that are, you know, from the outside perspective, irrational and kind of crazy and even dangerous or or repulsive. Um, but there's a story. I, I'll go back to my favorite Renoir quote: "Everybody has their reasons, right?" Mm-hmm. And so I feel like you've got to, even though you may have vehement disagreements when it comes to the application of opinions and beliefs on real life circumstances and, and how they affect other people, um, I, I do think we have to cut each other some slack to recognize that there's a story behind how I identify or express myself. And that's not always easy to take, especially when you find yourself in sort of a, a stance of opposition and, and maybe even intense confrontation with somebody whose views, you know, uh, conflict with your own. Uh, but that's the human condition.
0: Very, very well put. Very well put. Well, do you have anything else you want to say on wrong move? Or are you good to move on to no, kings yeah. of the road?
1: I mean, I, I, again, I think it's an important uh, portion of this trilogy. I mean, I can see some people watching it once and never wanting to revisit. Uh, but I, I, think, I think there's definitely interesting stuff going on here. Again, it's it's a it's more of a formal exercise. Uh, I would even think Vendors himself recognizes that it's it's flawed, and and it was a, du- a direction that he yeah. chose not to pursue, even though he continued working with Hanke. Um, but I think I think Kings of the Road represents a bit of a course correction for him, and where he went from there. And so uh, I'm glad we have it. I I think the restoration is is fantastic. It's it's a beautiful film and some interesting anecdotes in the commentary track. Even even simple things like pushing their car up the hill and then down the hill to get some of those tracking <laughs> shots. So it's it's, it's kind of cool. So yeah, uh, but that's probably. Do you think you it's think a road so. movie? Oh, oh, absolutely! Because again, you've got this geographic journey through Germany. Uh, you do have, you know, the requisite uh, landscape scenes, road scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not a road movie in the way Kings of the Road is, or or Alice in the Cities are, um, because again, it's it's more it's more defined it's it's a very intentional sequence that was scripted out and they kind of knew from the beginning of the production where this was going to wind up and so even the use of the geography is is very symbolic they start from this town which the, the german name basically translates into lucky town and it winds up on this peak overlooking you know at least metaphorically the the vast expanse of germany so it has this kind of um, preposterousness to it, you know, in terms of how landscape is used, but absolutely, is a it's a road movie.
0: Yeah, no, the, I I would agree with you. There's some talk in one of the essays about it not being a road movie, and I thought it's not the same, like you said, as Alice in the Cities and Kings of the Road. But it starts on a train; they're constantly moving. Really, yeah. there's there is a lot more immobility and static. Um, moments as well in this one but yeah there's a journey it just is as we said maybe a little more ponderous and therefore uh maybe not as satisfying as a, as a road movie sometimes is where you have this sense of exploration and discovery yeah uh, rather than frustration which i think is part of the point of the film you know they're, they're, these people are frustrated um and they don't get out of that and yeah. Maybe this that's is, one of my reactions to right.
1: it it's not a fun. Jump in, you know, just skip the questions, just jump in, let's go. Let's see where this goes. Uh, it doesn't have that open road, you know, easy rider type of feel. Um, and in fact, you know, it's it, it, it sort of emphasizes the the emptiness or the the the, the very high chance that this You know, go on the road and find yourself is going to wind up just in another stage of frustration because there's really nothing out there to discover that you know separates you from the baggage that you bring with you on the journey. So, yeah, it's it's a different type of road movie, but I think it fits the category. Well,
0: yeah, let's move on to Kings of the Road, the longest one. This one's this one's nearly three hours, but it Mm -hmm. it weirdly it both feels like that because again it can feel like it's you you're on this week weeks long voyage with these characters but i feel like this one goes pretty fast when i sit down to watch it this is, this is my third time watching mm-hmm. this movie mm-hmm. uh watched it a couple times back when it first came out because the first time i watched it i was more struck by some of what what vendors shows and does in this movie that are things that can throw you right out of it <laughs> and then some things that you know that that stood out and so i wanted to give it another shot of just hey, let's just ride with them now mm-hmm. and and then this time through i uh again probably enjoyed it even a little bit more this time than i had in the past though i always thought this was a, a pinnacle of these early of these early films too uh, here we have uh, Rüdiger Volker. Surprise! He's back. <laughs> and here he plays a man named Bruno Venter, uh, who at the very beginning is sitting. In, you know, he he's he's well. I guess at the very beginning, he is discussing uh, film and film histories. He's a he's a projector repairman, going around from theater to theater, uh, repairing you know maybe sound elements or lighting elements, but but making sure that films can still be shown in these old theaters. And at the beginning, he's he's listening to an owner talk about film and about what they're doing. But he he wanders, you know. He wears his overalls with no shirt on underneath him, just some briefs under that. Uh, so he's he lives on the road. And one day, he's sitting out in his in his in his van or his truck with all of his equipment and shaving in the front seat when out the window. Uh, a fellow passenger, or a fellow passenger of life, I guess, another guy on the road, um, drives his car very quickly into the lake, failing miserably to commit suicide, which seems <laughs> to have been his his yeah. intention there. And just like you laughed, so does yeah. so does Bruno <laughs> as he watches it. He can't he can't keep can't contain his his delight that that he just witnessed such a ridiculous uh, way you know way to go that doesn't doesn't succeed. And out of the water pops. Uh, Robert Lander, uh, yeah. played by Hans Zieschler. I don't know how to say yeah, it. Is Zieschler, Zieschler. Yeah. Uh, and they 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 connect and drive on the road for a little while so that he can you know dry off his clothes and what turns you know what was meant to be just a hey I'll help you get to the next stop becomes kind of a, a nice journey in this film.
1: Well it's a funny little meat cute if you will. <laughs> and and the reason I laughed the first time I watched it and 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 I totally resonated with uh, Bruno's laughter as well. And maybe this is just a a sign of my age as a child of the 60s and uh, you know early 70s everybody knew back then. Volkswagen Beetles float, right? I mean, it was. They, I mean, they, they used it in their advertising. So if you're gonna try to kill yourself by driving a car into the river, the the Beetle is the last thing you want to take. And it's like, because that's exactly what the car does. It just bobs like a little cork on the stream, and and. I, you know, was that? Was it the Elba River? I think it was actually the. It's not a lake. Think, it's a river. It's the Elba River. That's which right. Is, I apologize. The, it's right on the border. It's it's the border uh, between West and East Germany. Mm-hmm. And and in the commentary again, Fender uh, yeah, talks a big, about a big the, the East German soldiers who were monitoring. I mean, that river was a a border crossing, and and they had sealed that border up, and nobody was allowed to go back and forth either way so you figure a river i mean that's not that wide it's a it's a swimmable river you you had to have a very you know, very present and very alert security up and down the entire length of that waterway to stop people from crossing over. And so here's a, a floating vehicle that just goes zipping into the water. Now I'm sure vendors and his crew did not call the East German authorities and saying, by the way, we're gonna be forming or filming a movie on right. Saturday morning. So that's, don't that's be too alarmed style. by that <laughs> exactly that, right. Uh yeah, even their Empire State building shots and Alice in the Cities, he's said we're done without permits they just cordoned off the 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 viewing platform and said sorry nobody can come through (laughs) and shot their film renegade style and moved on so so yeah so there's definitely some agitation on the other side of that river there but to me it was just hilariously like a, a visual gag you know um Maybe I had watched the Herbie movies from Disney or whatever. So, I, I mean, when I see a Volkswagen go into the water, it's like, well, that thing's going to float for a bit. <laughs> it goes down. But, well, it's, it, yeah, go ahead. The, the comedy
0: keeps on going, too, because yeah, when, sure.
1: when Robert finds himself there,
0: you know, well above the water, he's not hurt at all, <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he, you can he see him kind his, of sigh yeah, right. and start collecting his stuff in order to get out and then, you know, walk, walk in. It's like, here, here's how we're introduced to this this man. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also introduced to Bruno and, and you you talk about his van. This thing is monstrous. It is like, right. That's uh, the wrong word for it. Well, I mean, it is, it's a moving van apparently. And this was an actual van that was used to move, you know, household items from one location to another. But, you know it's it's just it's the people look like they're shrunk down when they're actually inside i I guess it's maybe the size of like a, a pretty good size winnebago rv camper type of thing but it's just it's so unwieldy and so 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 huge just as a as a vehicle and it's got all kinds of equipment in the back this big old kind of you know uh, circular steering wheel that that is more of almost like horizontal rather than upright like we're used to and you just got to crank this thing with both hands just to get this thing going a big diesel engine i mean this it's a real beast of a of a of a ride and that's a it's a it's another important character in this film i would say
0: yeah for sure and this is this is pensive right not ponderous yeah. in my mind yeah and right. a lot of it is is Silent. It's actually so that there's where Bruno and Robert meet, but I don't even think we know their names for another twenty or thirty minutes, it's, which is when they finally yeah. introduce themselves to each
1: other. Yeah. yeah Most of that
0: time, they're just sitting there not saying a word. It's a it's a pretty silent movie at the at, especially at the beginning. I mean, kind of throughout, but especially there at the beginning, there are you know handfuls of minutes pass where no one's talking to each other. It's very visual. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and based on a lot of sound that, you know, ambient sound and mm-hmm. things that are going on.
1: Well, and I think it's the idea of of men who are not real good at communication, not real, a- you know, able to put their feelings mm-hmm. and thoughts mm-hmm. into words. Maybe- That's a big point of
0: the film, too. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, Robert's failure to kill himself is, I don't, I'm trying to think of how to, how to best say this, he continue he continues to try to communicate
1: with with his wife
0: uh which we presume is the reason that he did try to commit
1: suicide yeah he's tearing up the photo of his home Mm -hmm. right at the beginning there and you can tell he's escaping or getting away from a past life you don't really know what the details are until they they kind of trickle out the clues as the film goes on but you're right he's trying to call his wife on the phone but never really
0: makes never really getting there and it, and yeah, that stands out like, oh, there, there's that symbol, but it, it, it plays out pretty naturally because all of us when we're on the road might want to connect to someone back back home. Yeah. So you go to that pay phone or, or this little phone in this place or, or you know, even the, the, the scene where they almost connect it to the hard hard wire in a phone. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it, it is very much about that lack of communication or communication skill. And here, these two men sit together, not really knowing where they're going, other than we've got this. I've got this next town is where I'm going next for this to fix up this theater's projector, and that's really the direction they have.
1: And that's actually the the story of the making of the film as well. The the little scenario that we just described of the you know, drive into the river and and the, the the introduction of these two men to each other. That was pretty much the script right there. They, they had that figured out. And then everything from that point forward was really just improvisation and let's just take it to the next town and see what we find there. And we'll find some characters along the way. We'll maybe imagine or dream up some scenarios, some dialogues. And, and what you end up um, encountering is just a, a whole series of characters all going through their own sort of different, Crisis of life. So again, you've got the you know the individual character studies. You've got a sort of a bit of a sideline, sideways critique or uh, assessment of German society, and especially this life along the border, uh, this uh, inner border between East and West Germany, the interior of a country that's pretty rural pretty poor um that's really just not the focus of anybody's attention and so yeah a, a country that's divided against itself with this kind of arbitrary line drawn right down the middle um you're, you're you are getting a again a, the this travelog, the these kind of time capsules of of rural germany uh totally fly over country as far as that nation is concerned um, as as well as just kind of a sense of, you know, where, where is this society going and, and, and also the, the, the discussion or the reflection on the state of cinema and what's happening mm-hmm. uh, to cinema as an art form. Again, Germany has this very proud history. You've got this new German cinema movement that's offering some revival, but it's really it's based in Berlin and, and Munich and and uh, you know the the larger urban centers where all this is coming from. So they're kind of turning their attention to the places where. That kind of, uh, you know, art house cinema is just kind of shrugged off as, like, you know, those are just those city people doing what they do, and <laughs> which to the happen, point where we yeah. won't show their movies anymore because it's right. just filth, <laughs> right? It's it, yeah, exactly the, the the sexual element or or the fact that they they um, are basically not even showing art movies, but just straight up pornography, smut films, you know, because that's at least something that you can't watch on TV and that'll get a few people to you know, it's almost like a, a, a casino type of thing. Uh, you know, we're going to feed their addiction, you know, and just kind of give them what they want, and that will at least keep a steady stream of revenue going, whereas films that are like more, you know, have a little bit more artistic merit or, or classic films from the past, you know, people people just aren't that, that, that interested, or they might see it every so often, but not, not steadily, you know, as is the case with, uh, you know, um, more exploitative types of genre films, so yeah, so you've got vendors kind of offering his his thoughts on that as well, and even again just bringing our attention to the uh, the amazing uh, technology that is required to project films on the screen. Yeah, and I think that that was kind of a cool element as well. Uh, Bruno's character as this technician who's doing maintenance on these creaky old projectors and and understands the little quirks of the mechanics that that keep them going and you've probably got different types of cameras and if you're a if you're a seasoned projectionist or somebody who's just really you know kind of into that sort of more technical aspect you you probably recognize some of the hardware and some of the differences between one type of projector and another so yeah there's just a lot of fascinating kind of uh, you know, detaily stuff that that is placed in front of the camera over the course of these three hours. Again, the jukeboxes and, and other types of uh, you know technology. Uh, these these little scenarios are, are, are very amusing in of their own right, uh, and and they end up kind of weaving together into this kind of tapestry of of uh, this journey that is taken uh, along this border.
0: It's kind of an odyssey story yeah. mm-hmm. in a way. It's it's a series of episodes while while on the road and 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 a series of characters that you meet. And then, as you said, you know you, you leave them. That they're they, they 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 and their issues stay stay behind. But you know they become a part of you and a part of your story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and these the scenarios that it plays out are really. Interesting. I feel I really like the individual ones, and some of them mm-hmm. are visually just so fun. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, just like the children in that one theater where right? yeah. they, they they've all gathered together to watch a movie, and the projector's not working. Well, behind the screen is is Bruno working on the the the, the projector, hoping that they can get it going in about five minutes. Well, he's putting
1: a speaker in, right? Exactly. A yeah. speaker.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Robert kind of recognizes what they've got there. And so the the, the lights flip on, and they they perform like a shadow play for these children.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's so
0: fun; it's so delightful. And it's things like that, and the that clearly this is a film about cinema as much as well, maybe even more than it is about national identity. Mm -hmm. In a way, that's that almost felt like that was in there for us to to latch onto and to to kind of sense that oh, this is playing out on the border. Uh, That's that must be significant. But it never felt like Bruno or Robert cared or thought about it too, too, too much, other than when they might run into a character that's talking about it a little bit. You know, Bruno cares about film. That's when he starts talking. That's when Mm -hmm. he starts responding to what people are saying. And then we've got this shadow play, which is like an old silent film, and Mm -hmm. is just delightful to watch. It begins... With him talking with a, an owner of a theater, and it ends with that same thing. Despite the fact that you know the the scene that I remembered as the ending. Well, first off, watching this again, even though I'd seen it twice before, I thought it started with the him driving into the river with the with Robert driving into the river. Oh, yeah. It Doesn't starts with him talking to a theater owner about film. I thought it ended with that really lovely scene where they're. Parting and 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 bruno's down in his you know van or whatever you might yep. call it and uh, robert has gotten into a little a tiny i don't even know if that's a train a tram
1: <laughs> on the train <laughs> yeah. tracks it looks like a streetcar out in the middle of the country uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and and they're driving along and they're parting and coming together and then finally parting for good i thought that's where it ended but it didn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's there's another scene of him talking to a theater owner, and so I, it makes me just st- stop and think. What what is what is this film about? It's about so many things, but what what is it about for vendors? Why mm-hmm. is he throwing this political situation, this national identity, these men, this masculinity? because there's a pretty interesting conversation about them just not connecting, and it's it's about their, their masculinity. You know, they open up about connecting with women at a, at a part later on in the film. And then all this stuff about cinema, how does it all tie together? In some way, in my mind, it does, but I can't figure out why. I can't articulate why cinema has anything to do with these other... Scenes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or if not, you know, I'm not. I'm know. I'm putting yeah. you on the spot a little bit, but that's <laughs> yeah. that's one of my questions that really is is just digging at me, and I'd love to hear hear what you have to say.
1: Well, I think you know. You, let's look at. I mean, as you've already said, the framing really is about cinema. the The opening scene is about a theater owner who had to go to court to get the right to even own a theater in the early 1950s because he was a Nazi party member during the the era of the Third Reich and as such was a little bit blacklisted you know and kind of frozen out um, as a suspect character throughout the 1940s but he wanted to get back into cinema and was able to kind of you know prevail in his legal case and and so you're you're reminded of the fact that you know anybody that you see that's you know age fifty or so or a little bit older, and in the nineteen seventies was an adult pretty much of age during the the Nazi years and has somehow or another survived that and. Almost inevitably has some kind of a checkered past, and that's that's something that we we have to grapple with as as American and Western viewers or, or as younger viewers I mean there's a lot of political conflict in our society these days and people who align with different sides different political figures and you know often it's the case that you view those who are on the other side of wherever you affiliate as these reprehensible people well imagine living in a society where all of the adults Mm -hmm. all of the mature adults basically had some degree of complicity with nazi germany i mean i you know unless you were just a fide dissident and who really fought the system and resisted and never compromised my assumption would be a lot of people just kind of went along to get along you know and that's that's very troublesome when you think and, and grapple with the the monstrosity of 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 that regime that government and really of a society that enabled that you know and we don't have to get into showa and all of that but there's a lot of you know, um there's a lot of collective guilt and and shame associated but at the same time you you're alive you're a human being and and you cannot change the past uh, so so that's the opening and then the, the the final scene is really a woman talking about how she really cannot continue to show films because she's she's depressed and Uh, saddened by the you know the degree of explicit material and 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 how is it better to know show no films than to show this stuff? Well, that's what I I was just about
0: to interrupt you to say. Better no films than these films,
1: yeah. And I don't think vendors, um, is endorsing that. I don't think that's the punctuation mark because he's obviously, I mean, you make a three hour road movie, uh, with all of the cinematic flourishes of this particular title that's a pretty deep investment in cinema and a very strong endorsement of the power of cinema and yet he's also acknowledging that there is a a uh, a different perspective here i mean the fact that he's almost in some ways giving the last word to somebody who he might strongly disagree with i think that's a very fascinating decision you know he's not necessarily sending the audience out on this feel good Ah, cinema is life, and life is cinema, and isn't it great? <laughs> you know, uh, he's he's introducing some very complicated thoughts into the into the conversation. Go ahead. Well, someone who would
0: take issue with the very film that we just are watching, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So. Uh, think about some of the the vulgarity. I mean, you've got taking a crap on screen. You've got piss. You've got puke. <laughs> I, mean, I talked about a John mm-hmm. Waters movie, you know, a couple months ago or whatever, <laughs> where you've got some of the. I mean, it's a. Wholly different vibe than what you've got here but this is a literally let it all hang out type of movie um where there you know it's all there all these functions of life are are kind of there on screen uh you've got you know very brief clips but you know you've got excerpts from a pornographic film you know and a man masturbating while he's sitting in the projection room. So it's pretty, it's pretty raw on some levels It it's, I won't, I won't say it's lured because I don't think it's, you know, it, it's not completely in your face. They're not lingering over those body function type of moments, but they're there. It's part of the, uh, it's part of the presentation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you're right. And, and then to give, give someone the, the last word that would probably say, I'd rather burn all of cinema <laughs> than show your film yeah and, and, yeah, and mean it and actually have some points to it too, especially when you consider the market yeah. and what, what she has been, you know, feels like she has been forced to show in her theater just to make money and survive, you know, a chosen profession that probably started because of, of a passion and delight of what cinema had been in the past. And then here, here's where it is right now. Yeah. I don't want to go there, right. and and I and I can see where she's coming from too. I mean, I, I think this is a, a great film. I will will watch it again. I'll show it again. You know, mm-hmm. but I can see where she's coming from because I'm also not going to promote this like with my kids. That, <laughs> yeah. Like this isn't yeah. this, this isn't what I when I think of going to watch a movie. Um, there is a, a bit of a romanticism to that that yeah. I latch on to as well. I mean, I love love Hollywood. I love the all of that kind of stuff, and so you can kind of see where she's disillusioned and disappointed, and probably feels like, oh, what have I been? What have I been doing? How how did I get here? And, well, if you uh, think about, he gives her that.
1: Well, you think about the function of cinema in in this society in these particular small towns. This is an escape from the dreariness of life in these kind of Nowheresville, Germany. You know, um, these people don't have a lot of variety. They don't have uh, the opportunity to travel. I mean, maybe you can travel around the West German interior, but think about you know think about living on that side of the river when you've got family friends on the other side of that river that you cannot see you cannot really communicate with i mean there's a there is a depressive quality under you know underlying all of these films about the you know in a particularly wrong move and and uh, kings of the road because you do have a fragmented society uh, but vendors is not ridiculing or shaming that woman he's not you know he's not presenting her argument as kind of a a a foolish type of expression, or that he knows better than her. I think he's recognizing that that, that romantic quality of cinema as a as a good time to kind of see a, a new angle on the world and take a break from the pressures and frustrations of everyday life. Um, that's harder to do with these kind of more modern films that are showing life warts and all and and are you know, giving you stories that don't resolve themselves with a happy ending, uh, that that sort of depict the the ennui and the aimlessness and the precariousness of of just of how we're living. So while you've got candor and honesty and authenticity, uh, you're, you're you're getting all of that, but but the cost is that the dreamlike qualities or the the escapism and the romanticism are kind of you know compromised it's 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 hard to have both now you can also say that though he does
0: piece. in this film yeah the shadow play yeah and all these things are, are relatively magical
1: you well know? yeah and vendors definitely has a romantic aspect i mean wings of desire extremely romantic movie and even even the, the kings of the road has its romanticism of the open road of male companionship even if it's kind of non-communicative and quiet you're still two guys just kind of living the dream you know you're not bogged but, down by responsibilities and, uh-huh. and, and schedules you're just that doing it yeah
0: that great scene where they put on just like eddie on uh, yeah. the radio and, yeah. and sing it together in in their in their english you know yep, yep yeah yeah <laughs> it it is it, it's it's this this film kind of has it all in in that way that's a real I'm, i like where this has gone i like that insight because that's there's a richness to this film that i Probably had no, noticed subconsciously, but now you're expressing it well.
1: Yeah, and not not every not every side story works as well. I mean, I, I you know the the encounter between um, the Hans Gisler character was it Richard is that his name um, and yeah. his father. I, I was kind of waiting for yeah. something to kind of pay off there. I mean, it's, it's very tense, and you can tell there's there's a a painful history here. But my my takeaway is that the father just kind of slept through most of it. And, and he was, again, very stern, very non-communicative. Uh, again, another survivor of the, the Nazi generation uh, who apparently was not a very good partner to uh you know the young man's mother and th- that's kind of the whole point the, the 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 culmination of all of that is that he prints a, a kind of a one-off edition of his father's newspaper he's a, a he's a printer a newspaper man and basically how to respect a woman and And it's like okay sure <laughs> yeah i i, I wasn't <laughs> sure exactly yeah was it was it the the lack of kind of uh, more of a conclusive or uh, kind of more of a expressive type of uh, confrontation. I mean, it felt kind of anticlimactic after all the buildup. Uh, maybe that was the point. You know, this guy's trying to hold his father to account, and really all he can do is just, you know, drop uh, a printed document. I, you know, I guess there's a poignancy to it, but it, it to me, cinematically didn't seem to deliver as much of an impact for the amount of time that was given to it. But yeah, I guess that's probably one of the less successful or less um rewarding scenes of these little mm-hmm. subplots, you know, but there, but there were others that I thought were, were definitely much more interesting.
0: Well, on that one, I would agree with you. It plays out pretty long and, and you've got his story with his father right there playing out as they're getting this all ready through mm-hmm. the night and then you've got uh, Bruno doing his own thing, and those two stories just kind of go on. But I, I guess, I guess for me, the anticlimactic. You, you said maybe that's the point, and I think I've always read it that way. It's at the end of it, you almost see, get the sense that now Robert is kind of broken and should just kneel down and start to to cry for what he's for mm-hmm. what he's been through and the fact that you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't. This isn't. This isn't what made it all better. This didn't redeem the past. It didn't make it go away. It didn't even change his father. And I kind of, I've always thought of it kind of that way. And there's, there's a piece that maybe comes from recognizing that, that I think I start to feel in his character once we move away from that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a progression in a way.
1: Yeah. What'd you think about this scene with, um, Bruno and the, the woman, uh, again played by Linda Kreutzer who is in all three of these films and I think she was Vender's mm-hmm. partner at the time um they meet up at a kind of a, a carnival a bumper car ride and again this is another little incongruous bit that may be jarring to to some viewers she pulls out a, a candle that's carved or sculpted in the shape of <laughs> Adolf Hitler's head <laughs> and, and yeah it's like whoa that's kind of you know Taboo, right? And and then here's Bruno using the, the lit candle. um uh, He makes a little play on words, a furor fi- fire, you know, like ha ha. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> um, you know, Hitler is is not to be made fun of, you know. I mean, it's it's just kind of this weird moment. But anyways, she ends up uh showing up again as the um as the ticket taker at this local cinema, and they have a little bit of a hookup there, and it shows again his you know, both his attractiveness, I mean, he is definitely kind of a cool vintage 70s dude in his overalls and bare chest and, and all of that. He's a handsome guy, and she's an attractive woman, but they they don't, they, they have their night together, and then he leaves, and there's kind of quiet tears shed, and it's just, again, there's nothing permanent. You know, she kind of makes it clear this, even on her terms, is more of a one-night stand. She's not going to let him move in with her just in case he has any ideas. And he also moves on the next morning, and they'll probably never see each other again. And there's a certain wistfulness and a a kind of a a mournful quality to their parting, but it's just how it is. And so, again, that, that lack of permanency, the inability to commit and to sort of connect on that deeper level that can sustain a relationship and that that is kind of the 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 kind of the gorgeous melancholy I think is is maybe one way of putting it of these films it's like there's a there's a a sadness and even a degree of 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 misery here at the existential situation and yet there's really no getting out of it so let's just make the best of it that we can and just acknowledge that this is how our lives are destined to go at least for this period or this moment in time
0: and i think it underlines <clears throat> the the scene that comes later on between him and bruno where they talk about women and th- for each of them not really being able to connect and you know bruno getting a little bit more explicit as he talks about that that he he always feels very lonely even when making love or something like that because he just realizes there's there's no connection there and and yet they do connect there's something there is there is something in that you know that relationship is real. It's brief. It's not mm-hmm. real in the way that others are, but, but the way that it's rendered on screen are as two genuine people, mm-hmm. um, who have that 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 moment that the, those moments of connection that they they then move on, and so I think it plays out again to that richness of of exploring that and and his own perspective of masculinity, and connecting with the feminine and all of that. I think it really. Uh, that that I, th- I think that stuff with uh, Lisa Kritzler is very important for mm-hmm. that uh, aspect of the film.
1: Yeah, I mean you can connect if you let yourself. You know, it's not going to be easy. It may not even feel natural because it's pretty apparent at this point that Bruno is very settled into this, you know, itinerant lifestyle of of just you know wandering from town to town uh to to give that up and to settle down or to say I'm going to just be in this relationship and I'm going to pick this particular village to live in he doesn't know how to how to do that you know that there's just it's just not in the cards you know um Another thought, what, what did you think about the decision to kind of leave the, the van behind for a period of time They get into that motorcycle with the sidecar? I thought that was actually a pretty inspired <laughs> choice just yeah. because it gives another texture and another variation on hitting the open road, you know? And you see both characters swapping roles. One guy's going to drive the bike, or the other's going to be the passenger. And I thought that was just a very nice little... Breath of fresh air as we're you know a couple hours into it now, and so we're going to get a sort of a different, uh, a different look and a different feel. Um, you know, well, just, yeah.
0: and and he had to be thinking of Easy Rider, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there, there's know. he had to have been wanting to do that for a while and thinking Easy Rider. And the another reason why I think that that just has to be the case is who does he go to 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 star in his next film?
1: Dennis Hopper, yeah, Dennis right. Hopper. Right, I mean, he, right. He,
0: he just he had to have Easy Rider on the mind, <laughs> yeah. and and yeah, but but to different effect. I mean, he's playing with the the freshness of that film too. I mean, that yeah. film doesn't doesn't stay that way in that kind of open freedom, but neither it, th- this one takes advantage of that. And and yeah, I I do I agree that it's again it's kind of an up and down, all over the place film, but that works in that way. It works because of that. Yeah. it it it's 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 the course correction like you said to wrong move <laughs> never, <laughs> never thought about that that title quite in that way way to go, you know, <laughs> and then kings of the road here we're, we're back on yep. we're back on top mm-hmm. and that that scene that they I really like these two characters I like them together, yeah. they like mm-hmm. each other together they're not gonna stay together they don't have any real relationship this is this is a testament to these connections though that you can make with someone as brief as it might be, that can still be meaningful and you can be meaningful for them. It didn't, it's not romantic. It's not uh, in, in anything like that. But it's it's goodness. It, it's kindness. They're kind to one another for the yeah. most part. And even though I don't think they either one of them would consider themselves kind people, I don't think that they would. I think they'd consider themselves flawed and miserable and problematic and probably not good for other people. But that's simply not the case, and the delight that they share is testament to that, in my mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. This this is a chapter in their lives. In fact, the the movie itself has very specific uh, the the opening titles. Not only mention the the aspect ratio one point six six to one. I mean, it's if like if only right every there.
0: director did that, right? <laughs>
1: but also, um, they 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 declare this was filmed between july 1st and october 31st 1975 so this is a very defined you know journey and i'm pretty much certain that the film was was shot in sequence in other words the earliest scenes in the film are the earliest scenes that were created the the prologue i think he said was created later and was stuck on at the beginning because they didn't really know where else to to go with it but it, it makes a very effective opening a happy sequence, accident for sure. oh, yeah. how do we start this film but, <laughs> but from that point on from start to finish is pretty much it is almost like a, a a visual diary of the experiences that they had putting this film together and and of course maintaining the characters you know, and and uh, making this a a, a fictional narrative. But this really was a shared group experience, both in front of and behind the camera. And they're kind of letting viewers in on the fact that, hey, we we made this movie last summer and fall, so come and join us on the ride, you know?
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that too. I like, and again, I'd forgotten about that until I watched it again this time. That's just not a detail Mm that stayed with me over the years, but it, it was kind of fun to see that because... They must look back on this too, and you can kind of get a sense of this in in the the commentaries and in the features. This is a, a big time of their life too, and I'm glad that they they shared it with us. Mm-hmm. But we are we are starting to to butt up against that that yeah. the, uh, time. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I do want to talk about the box itself. You know, as we like yeah. to do on this before we go. But anything else you want to uh, throw across when it comes to the. Uh, kings of the road or any of the, the films
1: no i mean again the, the music i think is is another really important aspect to it and he has a nice way of just getting these little kind of themes these motifs these little you know sound clips that just kind of keep things moving and, and uh, especially you know when i was watching it uh, my nice you know home theater setup with the surround sound I think probably that the audio component of this film, when the music kicks in, is probably better than it sounded when it was first released. Because you yeah, just got that really five point clear... one surround. Exactly, it's it's mm-hmm. gorgeous, and I I doubt that many German cinemas or release really cinemas you know were were equipped. And this film, even though it did win a prize at Cannes, you know, was not getting the deluxe you know tour uh, of of theaters you know around the world uh, that a lot of us have in our own homes these days. So, you know, the the musical component, like I say, is a really critical ingredient uh, to Vendor's films in general. I mean, we talked about some of, you know, the Buena Vista Social Club, I mean, that is absolutely a musical feast, uh, Pina with the dance and the music and the choreography. But uh, this is kind of more of that, you know, funky early 70s rock and roll. I mean, Vendor's himself really you know, acknowledges that he just put his favorite records in all of these movies, you know, and, and he got some great uh, you know, collaborations from Can and and uh, the Improved Sound System or something like that was the name of the, the band that did the little clips here, as well as the records that they play. So that's just another piece of it. But I, I think I've, I've said my share on Kings of the Road as a film, and let's talk about the box and this little beautiful mm-hmm. package that Criterion's put together.
0: Yeah, it is a lovely package. I think it's it feels like a nineteen seventies uh, album. Some, you know, something you might find somewhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's got it's got type. Uh, the 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 style of it is both in like uh, typewriter font, mm-hmm. as well as just pencil. You know, pencil yeah. scribbles, and yeah, it really nice. works together. Mm-hmm. As it goes through these Polaroids, if you, you know, on the outside, you've got vendors himself, uh, you know, back in the early 70s, uh, outside of Chester's Grocery and Gas. <laughs> uh, Which is,
1: nice old... a, it's an outtake shot or a behind the scenes mm-hmm. shot from Alice in the Cities. And in fact, that's where he says one of the Polaroids, they never show what you saw. You know, so even though the Polaroid is a cool technology, and gives you these little artifacts. You know, his artistic eye still sees something that the camera can't quite capture, but he's doing his best to get it. And I thought that's just a, a beautiful quote from a, a filmmaker who obviously really prizes the visuals and the the power of the image and has the, the courage to just let that be. I mean, because again, this is... This really feels like it's, it's opening a new era of modern filmmaking. And we'd seen films like uh, Two Lane Blacktop and Easy Rider that, again, lingered over landscapes and stuff like that. But um, Vendors just seems to be pushing that whole style of filmmaking forward. And, and as I said earlier, I think influenced a lot of subsequent filmmakers as well.
0: You know, I thought of Chantal Ackerman mm, mm-hmm. a, a lot yep. while watching it this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I don't know of any, you know, more anything more explicit than that that I can say. But Hotel Monterey, for example, mm-hmm. just the, the the confidence that you can you can put the camera out there and people will feel something coming from it. If you're good, if you're good, it's hard. Yeah. Super, super, you know, and, and
1: news from home that the New York City kind of documentary mm-hmm. is another one that really those visuals really just stick with you. Yeah.
0: But yeah, if you if you pull out the sleeves, you know, this is one of these nice box sets that has each each film has its own cardboard sleeve in the middle in the booklet, but you pull those out and inside, as they often do, they're little goodies to look at, little Polaroids. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and it's just, it's got this kind of white to it. I'm always worried mm-hmm. that this is going to get dirty and <laughs> so up. I, yeah. right. I keep it pretty pretty safely stowed away but yeah i, I do really like the style of, of this of this box set it it's unique i think it that the even though the box itself looks like any number of digipack boxes that the criterion has put out the style itself is just really well put together for these for these movies you know the low budgety uh, aspect of it it, it yeah. is very well thought out
1: but it, it's very handsome, and 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 just another one of those boxes where they print stuff inside the box, which I always love that little extra detail. You know, you can't always see real easily what's in there, but the fact that they've just made this such a very complete package, and and I love the booklet as well. It's got some, you know, again, you've already mentioned the Polaroids, the essays, quality. It just it has this real classy feel to it, and yet it, it's. Not thrown together in a in a in a kind of a casual or indifferent way, but it just feels like this little collection of uh, really what was the launching of a a very impressive and important career as a filmmaker, as well as the other talents. You know, the debut of Nastassia Kinski, the appearance of Hanna Shagula, Vogler, and and some even some of the bit actors went on to have pretty significant careers in German cinema, whether it's on TV or or on film. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, to me, just a very impressive um, little little portfolio that they've put together here.
0: So, if everyone can kind of ignore my my rant there in the <laughs> middle about wrong move, which I do oh. think is better than I than I say, but I'm glad that I still was able to get that out. I you guess. know, I I think I think, I think it's
1: fair to say that there might be some people who might watch wrong move for the first time and and really hate it. I mean, I I've I've read very scathing reviews and, and, uh, there was another podcast I found, uh, last week for they, you know, the, 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 two, the two people talked about the box set along the same lines. And and one of the people really did not like wrong move at all. So I think it's fair to say that that's not going to be the crowd pleaser. And it may even seem like the misfit for those who really enjoy the vibe and, and the feel of Alice and Kings of the roads. But, you know, uh, I think again, they, they do fit together. And I think, uh, either releasing them individually or, or keeping wrong move out of the set would have been a mistake. I think, I think they Mm -hmm. are an integrated suite of films, even if uh, vendors did not have that intention when, when he set out to film each of them.
0: Nope. I agree. I agree. Despite my, my feelings toward it, again, still positive. Just that's where I chose to go today and very glad that we have all these put together. I mean, you and I, we've been doing this long enough that, the films are definitely a part of it that that's why we're doing this but mm-hmm. the the stories behind the films it's the per, it's the it's the directors themselves or the 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 it's it's the time period you're so good at talking about the time period surrounding films and the culture and the the historicity of these things that i'm okay if i don't like every film
1: <laughs> yeah i'm yeah.
0: still really glad that we have this set and that i watched them all and i've watched them all again and i have no regrets about that it is not it's not the same as going to a movie that you just hate in the theater you know blockbuster right. and feel like you've wasted your time right i i, I this is ex- exceptional uh, career and a, a great story of, of where it began as you just said so highly recommend the the set and people check it out
1: yeah, I, yeah. it is nice that it is available on the criterion channel i mean if you definitely want to take the the low risk, uh, you know, side of it. Um, mm-hmm. you, you can watch all of these, but I, I do love this object. I do enjoy just looking at it and and having that booklet and just all of the, the nice little perks of the uh, of the set itself.
0: Yep, me too. All right, well, David, I think we're I think we're to the end. I will yep. get this up soon for our listeners so that we can come back and and keep going. Like you said at the beginning, yeah. we've got. A lot more of these we want to do. Oh, and yeah. And yeah. while we're being more, you know, a little bit slower than we used to be with the Eclipse viewer, uh, that was deliberate. And I've loved, yeah. I'm loving this journey.
1: Oh, I'm yeah. Loving the journey know, we're uh, on. Well, I've had a, a pretty enjoyable summer. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the pace has slowed down a little bit, but now, you know, we're post Labor Day and cooler temperatures and shorter uh you know sunsets are on the way so (laughs) i may be ready to pick up the pace of my uh podcasting and and all that related stuff (laughs) as uh we we you know head towards the the latter third of uh 2021
0: well any any last thoughts for listeners about what you're doing or where where you want them to go
1: Okay, well, I, you know, I guess on my regular podcast, Criterion Reflections, I just did a, my first sort of foray into Giallo uh, with a Massimo Delamano's uh, What Have You Done to Solange? So that's my current post on Criterion Reflections. Uh, my next thing is going to be sort of another box set exploration of the Godard and Gorin um set that was put out by arrow several years ago uh the next movie up in my criterion reflections queue is godard's Tout va bien starring jane fonda and yves montan in which uh jean-pierre Gorin he 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 was a co-director on that film uh, and you know that that's kind of what reminded me got me got me thinking back on our early days of the eclipse viewer was that uh, you and i did the Gorin eclipse set um the the uh i can't remember what it's called um but that was <laughs>
0: routine pleasures yeah. i remember it kind of has a whimsical yeah. name but i'm blanking right. on the name of the title but anyways, of the box but, set, too
1: right that was the first actual eclipse set that you and i reviewed together and i know that that was not necessarily the set that got you interested in <laughs> collaborating with me you know um but they were it was still a great conversation and the beginning of a wonderful partnership and so yeah, that was probably 10, 11 years ago now that we, we got around to recording that. But I'm going to be doing kind of a more in-depth study of Godard films uh, with John Lobinger, who very coincidentally, but fortuitously, he's going through uh, Godard's filmography and reading Richard Brody's biography of Godard. And he and I just kind of connected the other day, and, and I told him that this was this Goddard and Goren, five films, 1968 through 71, is on my to-watch list because Tout va bien is kind of the end of that particular phase of Goddard's career where he was working with the ziga Vertov group. And uh, this box set from Arrow is kind of a collection of the the major films that he made from that pretty much neglected era. And it's an era of Godard that's neglected because the films are kind of off-putting. They're very arch, very political, very pedantic, but I'm still really fascinated to understand what he was doing after the kind of more pop-cultury type of stuff of, the, of his you know, mid-60s heyday had run its course. He'd broken up with Anna Karina. He'd been very affected by the events of 1968 and kind of the failed revolution, if you will, and uh, really wanted to to pursue this very kind of political diatribe type of cinema. So I'm going to be spending some time going through this set and through those films. John and I are going to do kind of a a podcast kind of talking about that phase of Godard's career, and then I'll get back into my 1972 timeline. So it's a little bit of a break from my normal routine. Sorry for the Little, a long little uh, digression there, but that's that's kind of what I've got happening in my immediate podcasting future, and then I do my little quippy things on TikTok every so often as well. <laughs> so that's that's awesome. my update. Yeah, and I wanted to hear a little <laughs> bit more about your your moocs and gripes podcast. I, I oh mean, yeah, and Paul Wilson have kind of you know you've revived that program. You've got a partner in Paul talking about books. So I'm going to give you the cue to talk about what you're doing over there. You betcha. Well, first off.
0: The reason we couldn't remember the Jean-Pierre Gorin uh, box set name is because of that tongue-in-cheek title, Three Popular Films by Jean-Pierre Gorin. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, fond memories. But yeah, the Mooks and the Gripes podcast, that's... Uh, I've, I've had this going at times in the past in a few different iterations, but... They always are very difficult to do. For some reason, talking about a book a month is harder than talking about a, even a box set of films every month or so. There's They take longer to read. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't want to do that at night. You know, yeah. it, yeah. it can be difficult. So I've never been able to kind of keep it alive in that format. So what we've done, we're we're just doing a discussion podcast. We get together every couple of weeks just to talk about a topic of books. Talk about what we're reading, but also, you know, the first episode we did was our bucket list books. Just to share some enthusiasm. It's a chatter podcast. It's not a deep dive into anything particular. We did just do an episode on Cormac McCarthy that might be the closest to a deep dive we get. And even that was... Hey, we love to to talk about Cormac McCarthy. People who want to hear hear us do so, uh, you know. Maybe, hopefully, we're not two idiots talking about him, but we're also <laughs> not two professionals who are going to dig in and really get gather every nuance. We're more about the enthusiasm and this, the excitement and the encouragement of of being able to chat with people who share your interests. And so I think it's been a lot of fun for me. It's been good for me. It's been mm-hmm. one of those things that I just, I really, really value that time and the, the end result, something I'm proud of. And I've been been happy to see the response. In fact, I'm not even on YouTube, like I'm not a BookTuber, but we've gotten a little bit of viral, if you can call it mm. that. Uh, one of the BookTubers did a Mooks and the Gripes bucket list hashtag. Wow. Where they took that episode and, and ran with it and then invited others to do so. And so if you search on YouTube for that, you'll find, you know, I say viral, but there's probably 40 or 50 mm-hmm. <laughs> videos that that are on there about about that, that are kind of taking that on. And that's totally the goal that we set out to do was to, first off, have these fun conversations together, but hope that they have other people thinking about this and just having that moment when you can stop and and solidify something that... The, the day passes, but did you, did you take some time to, to stop and, and read or think about these things? And if not, can we, can we, in doing these activities, uh, make us feel that sense again, you know, that, that sense of, of engagement with this stuff. And so that, that's what we're doing. And it's been, it's been delightful. So we're on, we just released episode five. We've got like 10 or 15 episodes recorded. So we've got a lot of a lot of things that are in the pipeline and with no intentions of stopping or slowing down. So it'll, it'll keep going. And yeah, the Mooks and the Gripes podcast for those interested in hearing me talk more about books, uh, as well as the movies we do on this one.
1: Yeah. Well, put that link in the show notes as they say, right? There, oh, there we go. Fantastic. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, David, thanks so much for your time again this morning. I take it, uh, as an honor, honestly, and I look forward to our next one.
1: Yeah, we don't exactly know what we're going to do next, but we'll have our conversation uh, behind the scenes and uh, come back at you. Yeah, hopefully sometime in the not-too-distant future. So it's been a fantastic morning of conversation with you, Trevor, as always. So thanks for uh, putting it together and uh, facilitating this this program. It's great to be with you.
0: Yes, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.